The National Archives podcast series, Britain's Air Forces in the First World War, presented by Clive Hawkins. Britain's Air Forces in World War I. So that's an opener. Today I'd like to illustrate not just the records of those who served in Britain's Air Forces, but also the broader collection of a related material that, that we hold here in the archives. Some of the sources may be familiar to you, others possibly not. We will be using images drawn solely from TNA records to highlight the varied range of documents from sources for family historians, uh, operational records and detailed technical data. I will also use a case study of a famous aerial action to show how all of the records can be brought together. First of all, I'd like to look at the sources for the individuals who served. Now, you may be surprised to learn, or maybe not, that um, it, we, we need to look at Army, Navy and Air Force to, uh, uh, to, f to find all of those that served during the Great War. So, just as a to sort of set the scene, the Royal Flying Corps, R the R RFC, was in existence from 1912 to 1918, and it was, the arm, it was the air arm of the Army. In July 1914, the Royal Flying Corps' naval wing was detached to form the Royal Naval Air Service. On the 1st of April 1918, the two separate services were merged again to form the Royal Air Force. Men of both services who continued after this date transferred into the new service and were joined by new entrants. So that's the, sort of the, ba the basic layout of it. So starting with the Army, as it was originally a, an Army service, um, first record series I'd like to draw to your attention is WO339 Officer's Service Record. It contains records for correspondence for regular Army and emergency reserve officers who served in the First World War. Uh, the content uh, varies enormously from notes supplying date of death to a file of several parts containing attestation papers, records of service, personal correspondence and various other information. It covers actually just sh short of 140,000 officers. And just to sort of highlight this, this record series is in the process of being expanded. So far, we've, we've completed about 91,000. In its original format, all you have is, is the, the reference, the, uh, the surname, and, and an initial, which, as you can imagine, with 140,000 people, that's, it's going to be quite difficult if you're, if you're searching um, uh, you know, a fairly common name. The work that we're doing currently is to expand it by putting in the rank and where we can find them, the, the, uh, the full uh, forenames uh, and the regiment. So that should enable people to, you know, to, to, to find, to find their, their um, uh, man more easily. So there we are, British Army officers, obviously including Royal Flying Corps. And, of course, you've got the other ranks, and a good, and a good source for that will be the, the, World, the World War I medal cards, because, as you can see there, they state quite clearly um, the, the different regiments that people served, in, including Royal Flying Corps, of course, are the soldiers' records, the burnt records. It's going to be another excellent source for tracing men that served, that served in the Flying Corps. Moving on to the Navy, ADM-188. So the series contains over 600,000 Royal Naval Service records for ratings who joined between 1853 and 1923. Some of the records cover, cover periods of service up to 1928. They're in two, two basic series. But the thing that we're really interested in is the is ADM not the ADM one three nine element of it, but ADM one eight eight, which which runs from eighteen seventy three to nineteen twenty three, and importantly, you'll see it says at the bottom there service numbers with the prefix F 
donate service in the Royal Naval Air Service, so that's all, all part of that. ADM 273, re uh, service records for Royal Naval uh, Air Service officers, another obvious source. These are the service records of officers who served in the Royal Naval Air Service during World War I. They can also contain detail of service before the First World War. The collection in series ADM 273 consists of records of approximately 7,500 men. Many officers transferred from the Royal Navy. You can trace their previous service record in Royal Navy officers' service records. Moving on to the Air Force, Air 79. Now these are the records that, were, that came about in April 1918 when the, the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service amalgamated. So these men were asked whether they wanted to continue in their, in their existing service, Army or Navy, or did they want to move into this new, this new organisation, the Air Force. It consists of, as regards service numbers, uh, 329,000 service numbers. Now, not all of them are complete. There are, there are, miss there are some that, that are missing. But it's certainly well, well over sort of 320, 325,000 men with, within. It covers a wide range of uh, subjects. They're, you've got their details, their previous occupations, uh, their family, children, their, where, where they've actually been serving beforehand. So it's, it's an excellent source, not just for, for military service, but also for family historians, because it contains quite a lot of information on, on their, their home life. Women's Royal Air Force records. These are service records of around 30,000 women who served in the Women's Royal Air Force between 1918 and 1920. These records from Series Air 80 include volunteers for the Women's uh, Army Auxiliary Corps, Women's Elite Legion drivers and Women's Civilian subordinates. The women were based in Britain at first, performing roles such as drivers, mechanics, cooks or office clerks. Later, around 500 women served in France and Germany. After the war, Helen Gwynne Vaughan, commandant of the Women's Royal Air Force, was awarded Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire in recognition for her work. Air 76. So these are the service records for RAF officers. These service records for officers who served in the Royal Air Force during the First World War, 14 to 18. This collection in series set Air 76 consists of the records of over 99,000 men. The records were created from, from the inception of the Royal Air Force in 1918. However, they include retrospective details of earlier service in the Royal Air Force or Royal Naval Air Service where appropriate. So as you can see, there's a whole range of different record series that you need to look through to, to try to pin down ind individuals, certainly moving forward into, into the Royal Air Force. Because okay, so that covers the basic material, so it, when, you're, when you're looking for individuals, I now like to sort of move on to operational units. What I should say at this point is that I've basically been through a lot of re records and I've picked on things that I th that I've found interesting. I've picked on a lot of illustrations and so on and so so forth, just to give a flavour of um, the sorts of materials that you can find here in general about the air service at that, that time. So they're quite they're quite varied. Um, and I've also also go on to, to sort of developments and inventions and so on, but more of that later. But some some detail here about the air force itself. The the air forces of Britain had expanded beyond all recognition during the conflict of the war with just a relative handful of flying machines used for spotting in 1914. To the final days of the Royal Flying Corps, where over 1,200 12, uh, aircraft were deployed in, in France to meet the German offensive of the 21st of March 1918, with the support from the Royal Naval Air Service. Uh, and from April, these forces combined to form the Royal Air Force as an independent armed service. 
From small beginnings, these, these services had grown by the end of the war to an organisation of 290,000 men, 99 squadrons in France with 1,800 aircraft, a further 34 squadrons overseas, 55 home establishment squadrons and 199 training squadrons, with a total inventory of some 22,000 aircraft. At the end of the war, there were 5,200 pilots in service, which was just, just about 2% of the Royal Air Force. In comparison, the casualties for the Royal Flying Corps Royal Naval Air Service Royal RAF for 14 to 18 totaled 9,400 killed or missing, 7,300 wounded. Some 900,000 uh, 900, flying hours on operations were logged. 6,900 tonnes of bombs had been dropped. And the Flying Corps claimed some 7,000-plus 7, German aircraft and balloons either destroyed or sent down out of control or driven down. So, as regards operational units, Air One is an excellent source for details. The sort of things you might look for in Air 27 for, for the later period, Second World War and on, Air One contains a, a, a large amount of information on the early, early uh, flying service. You can see this one here. This is uh, dated 1913. Uh, it's, it's a log. Tell it's early, said that here they could make no progress against the wind. So we're talking about very early, early aircraft here and, um, and the way they were. So you can imagine just from, 19 th from 1913 to, to how they had pro progressed getting across the channel in 1914 to becoming a sort of a, a, a war winning weapon by, by uh, just a few years later. A more common source would be the Air, Air 27. This is piece 1298 for number 210 Flying Boat Squadron. Now, the, the vast bulk of the information on any particular squadron will be for the, latter, for the, for the later period, you know, World War, World War II, late 30s maybe. But they often do contain a potted history of earlier service. So you can see here, even though it's not, not, uh, not huge, you've got lo locations and, and dates and so on. So say so it is worth looking in Air 27 for, for squadron records. Air 1673, the uh, Kite Balloon Training <coughs> Manual. Now this contains a list of ratings at Capel Airship Station. Extremely good breakdown because you've got all the ratings here, not just as, as you find in Air, Air 27 for late, later years or uh, mainly, mainly or solely aircrew. Here you've got a complete breakdown of the basically the, the types of jobs that, be, that, that, that the men were undertaking, riggers, wireless people, dri drivers, stores, all sorts, with their names, initials, and their ranks. So it's an excellent source for um, finding, you, you know, the, the, the workforce, if you like, of, 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 of the, uh, the unsung heroes, if you like, of, of, the, of the force. Also, in Area 1673, just to illustrate, we've got examples of the, of the kit that they were using, this type of M-type M balloon. Quite a lot, a lot of detail there. Could be of considerable interest for people that are you know, studying that area or model making or so on and so forth. And of course it has operational, as I was saying, it has operational information. So the, these, uh, the, 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 this is the basic, like, it's almost like a, like a diary. As you can see here, uh, while in basket number 27, sections of balloons were attacked by, by a halberstadt being under heavy machine gun fire and unable to engage a hostile machine, he descended in, in, in the parachute and landed safely. So it gives a, 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 a very good, it's 
better in many ways than Air 27. It gives, uh, uh, there are a lot of accounts of day-to-day -day activity in quite, in quite some, some detail for all sorts of different units. RAF establishments, again, in, in, Air, in Air 1, to sort of get a, a, a sort of generic feel for how, how they were um, organised. And this is just a, an example of a bombing wing. This is, does, is not mentioning um, individuals as such, but it gives the, the breakdown of the unit, uh, gives, it gives the, the ranks, of, uh, the, the ranks of, of, and the different, uh, different jobs that people were undertaking, um, and the numbers, numbers of men involved. So it's quite an interesting document so to get a, get a feel for the, the, the way a, a unit was organised. In Air 2, I discovered some maps as well, which are, were particularly interesting. Limpney um, RAF base. It gives a fairly detailed account of, of, the, of the workings of, of, of the base, the locations of, the ver of various huts and ins installations, and it's got quite a useful key as well for, um, you know, for, for ident identifying the, uh, the different ele elements of the field. So with all these records, you, 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 know, you can pull together, you've got the men, you've got the, you've got the equipment, you've got the, the, um, uh, the, way, the way the system was organised, and illustrations of airfields and, and accommodation. Now in this section I just wanted to draw your attention to some some of the plans in that that we hold. Um, here in a Avia 14.3 we've got just, an, just to illustrate the plan of a BE2A. Now these are the actual plan is probably about half the size of that, maybe slight, slightly larger. They are extremely detailed, so anybody that wants to look into the flying machines that, that they were using, the Avia series is, is to be re recommended. I mean, it breaks down even further into the technical, technical details for cockpit, engine layout. Just for this one aircraft, I think there were about six or seven separate plans, and I just use these to illustrate. So anybody that, as I say... Again, going back, even somebody that's sort of a model maker, anything of that, of that sort, these, these plans are going to be extremely useful. But within this, within Air 2417, um, th this illustrates the performance of, of uh, various service aircraft. A lot of good detail there on the, air, the aircraft types, their, their engines, uh, their, their performance, weight, loadings, so on and so forth. So again, another very useful source for sort of uh, broadening the picture or, or, or filling, filling out the, inf the information. Development. Again, things that I thought were of interest. Now this is an unusual contraption. You often hear people say that uh, they weren't really taking a lot of note of, the, of, 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 the, of aircraft before the, before the war. Uh, they were just a sort of a toy, a, a side issue. But this document illustrates that they were in the years before the war, thinking about how they would actually deal, deal with a, a combat aircraft, because this is a rig set up to test propellers against uh, rif massed rifle fire. It's simply a, 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 a framework with a prop, and they uh, brought, brought up uh, groups of infantrymen to fire on the prop, the idea being that the aircraft would be vulnerable, to would be attacking head-on. They'd already, they say, before the war, they'd already assumed that that would happen, or certain, certain um, elements had, had assumed that. And they were testing the effect of, of uh, rifle fire and, to, to a lesser degree, machine gun fire on props. Uh, they actually found that it was a complete failure, that, um, that, that, that um, it had very little effect at the, different, the ranges that they were firing at. Um, 
and so I think they just they decided that was not you know not not a particularly good idea. But just to illus illustrate that uh, that they were considering that well before the war. Now I'd like to look at another development, that, that of the parachute. Um, parachutes had been in use for some time uh, by men manning the observation balloons. They tended to be fairly bulky and, and the fixed line type, that's, that's a ripcord being attached to the balloon, balloon basket. The prospect of developing a parachute for pilots has been raised many times during the war by the high, high commands on both sides. But basically they felt that it was a bad idea. They thought that it would be... Um, they, they, would, they wanted their pilots to struggle with, with, with damaged aircraft and to hopefully bring them back, back down to, 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 to the ground in one piece. And they felt that by issuing parachutes, it would encourage people to bail out and, uh, and save themselves, foolishly. So this continued throughout most, most of the war. Uh, the, the fear of death in a blazing aircraft was such that the pilots, including the, the ace, uh, 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 Edward McManock, carried a revolver. And he, he stated quite clearly that he would use the revolver on himself rather than being incinerated in a, in a blazing aircraft. The Br British were on the verge of issuing parachutes. We were actually at the end of the war, so we were rather late. The Germans had got in bef before, before us and had, issue, had issued parachutes and had used them. But they, even so, they were quite dangerous. There were an awful lot of German, German pilots that were killed trying to use their parachute. They often snagged. They were a fixed line type. They often snagged on the air aircraft when, when the pilot tried to bail out. So they weren't... They weren't the be-all be all and end-all. Um, it was quite different from in a balloon, where you're in a fairly static position. You can jump out of the balloon and descend. But when you're in an aircraft that's possibly going out of control, it's, it's quite difficult to, to actually get yourself out. So as I say, they were on the verge of, of issuing them at the end of the war. There were two types of chute that were ordered by the, by, by the British. Um, one was a modified version of a thing called a Guardian Angel by Calthrop, and the other was a, a Mears type, which was a cheaper... Uh, it was cheaper than the Calthrop and could be rolled across the shoulders. 500 Mears parachutes were on order. Both were in the form of static line and the chute being deployed by the weight of the falling airman, so actually falling away, so the, the, falling away from the aircraft at one end of the line. As you see with, with paratroopers in World War II, one end of the line would be attached to the aircraft and that would snag the, snag the chute open. And they found that, um, that most aircraft were suitable for them. They tried them on certainly on SE-5s, RE-8s, DH-9s, and pr pretty, found pretty well that, that, that they, they could be applied to most aircraft. But by the time they actually got them into service, the war, the war was virtually over, so they didn't, uh, they didn't see a lot of use. Thomas Ord Lees, sometimes known as the Mad Major. He'd had quite a career. Um, he'd been on Shackleton's uh, tr uh, Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, He'd been the, he was the first uh, non-Japanese born to have, to have climbed Mount Fuji, so he got around quite a bit. But he was also a great believer in the parachute, and um, so much so that um, he actually demonstrated one on Tower Bridge, to, just, to prove, just to prove his point. He went to Tower Bridge and, um, and leapt off it, and obviously it worked because he, he survived. But basically, when he came back from the, uh, the Shackleton Exposition, he, he uh, came back to England... Um, he served in the Western Front in the Balloon Corps. Shackleton helped, helped him into that position. And he was, a very, say, a very enthusiastic uh, uh, advocate of the early parachute. And here, again, I think is, is the, the earliest photograph I can find, Mun 820, of those trials. Not with a man. These are, these are, drop, these are dropping a, a weight just to show. And you can see they're, they're deployed from... They're fairly close to the ground, 
uh, by, by modern standards, and they, they deploy pretty quickly. Now this I put in for interest, because they called him the Mad Major, and obviously people thought that he was fairly cool about parachute drops. Now this is a, as you see here, pulse rate test before and after. And here we have the Mad Major, Major Orderlies. Normal pulse rate, 58. Pulse rate after, quite a lot higher than 58. So I, th I think in, in these early days, even, even for people that were you know, promoting, promoting the parachute and saying it's a great thing, obviously found it a fairly, a fairly uh, um, testing, <laughs> testing past, pastime. But there we are. So it's just a medical report, um, Air 2601, of various... Uh, of, of various uh, uh, officers, a couple of officers or so, that were uh, descending by parachute. From air aircraft and balloon, you see here he's, he's made a drop from, a, from a, a kite balloon and then two drops from, from an aircraft. But you can see the dates here. It's, actually, it's, it's, it's you know, uh, just, just before and not actually af after the, the conflict. Next thing I'd like to look at, the Pomeroy bullet and the Zeppelin. On the morning of, the, of January the 19th, 1915, two German Zeppelin airships, the L3 and the L4, took off uh, from their bases in Germany. Both airships carried 30 hours of fuel, eight bombs and 25 incendiary devices. They had been given permission by the Emperor Wilhelm II to attack military and industrial buildings. The Emperor had forbidden an attack on London due to the concern for the, ro for the royal family whom he was related. The two German Zeppelin airships crossed the Norfolk coastline at around 8.30pm. Having crossed the, the, the coast, the L3 turned north and the L4 turned south. The incendiary bombs were dropped to enable the pilots to, to navigate to their chosen locations of Great Yarmouth and Kings Lynn, where they dropped their bombs. A total of nine people were killed and some buildings were damaged, but the effect of the raid on the population um, who were used to battles being, being fought on the, on the Western Front, uh, you know, and a distant thing, uh, the, the, the impact on, on, on public morale was, was, was immense. Um, in fact, morale dropped and people feared that further raids, and that, the, that the, maybe this was the, the precursor to a German invasion. Further raids were carried out on coastal towns and London during 1915 and 1916. The silent airships arrived without warning, and with no, with no purpose-built built shelters, people just hid in their cellars and under tables. Uh, there were a total of 52 Zeppelin raids claiming the lives of more than 500 people. So the question was, how are we going to deal with this? You know, the, the, the war was one thing, but public, public morale, morale was all, all of a sudden was, was, was dropping. They tried various means to, to, to um, combat them, generally standard artillery, mounted on, uh, firing at high angle on the back of a truck. Um, but th these things hadn't proved to be terribly successful. Standard machine gun bullets against the Zeppelin, again, not, not really that successful. And this, these photographs, I, I thought, were particularly sharp um, and great illustrations of, 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 the, of the time. Air 1569, it says, Soldiers and residents survey bomb damage to Walters Terrace, Wallace Street, Hull. The bomb left a crater 18 foot in diameter and 7 feet deep and destroyed 14 houses and killed four civilians, including the three-year-old three, three Isaac White. So these, the, these bombs are, are, are of a considerable power to destroy, a raid to destroy 14 houses. You can imagine the impact that, that would have on, on the civilian population. 
The Germans had already attacked the, the eastern coast and bomb bombarded places like, like uh, Scarborough. That was, that was bad enough. But to actually come silently in the night and, uh, and, and cause this sort of damage, you can, you can, you can imagine the, the impact. And just a couple more to illustrate. Uh, Great Thornton Street, this is Air 1569. One of the five boys was sleeping in the room, two in the bed shown, that was struck by a falling incendiary bomb. It crashed through the floor, seriously injuring uh, a woman asleep, uh, a woman asleep in the room below. All five boys escaped injured. And you can see here the hole in the ceiling where the things come through. It's missed, narrowly missed the boys in the bed and actually gone through the floor here. And missed uh, Air 1569 again, Mr. Godfrey Scott and his wife examining dam damage caused by an incendiary bomb which fell through the ceiling of the home at 54 Walker, Walker Street, Hull. So this is just, a, this is, you know, just the, the, an incendiary, so it's just the weight of the shell, come, the actual casing coming through without, without uh, high, high explosive. Now this is an experimental paper here in Mun 7429, the experimental trial of the Pomeroy bullet. Uh, Pomeroy bullet was an explosive machine gun round deployed specifically for use against the Zeppelin. It was an incendiary bullet developed by the New, Zealander, New Zealand engineer John Pomeroy. It was quickly adopted by the British to combat the threat that was having such a huge psychological impact on the British public. Filled with nitroglycerine, the bullet ignited the hydrogen gas which escaped from the Zeppelin bags once struck <coughs> by a bullet. Um, Basically, the, the problem, there, there was another type of incendiary bullet that, that um, we were using, called the, de, de, developed by a chap called Brock. And this was a, um, what we now think of as an incendiary bullet. So it's, it's just a straightforward uh, bullet casing with, with an incendiary device that burns from the tail. But they, f they, they assumed, and one would assume, that, that anything like that entering a bag full of gas would, would ignite it and just blow the thing to pieces. But it, it, it doesn't. For, for, the, the, for one reason or another, going into a, a dense um, envelope of gas, it doesn't necessarily ignite it. The, the, the gas is, is not inert, obviously it's, high, it's hydrogen and highly, highly dangerous, but it doesn't necessarily, or more often than not, it does not explode if you do that. So these things would pass through it. What Pomeroy came up with was an exploding round, so this needed to strike something hard to, to detonate it, so it would literally blow up. And the, the reason it was, was a finally a success was that uh, a mixture of incendiary bullets and Pomeroy bullets would, would rip through the, the, the casing of, the, of, the, of the, the gas envelopes. The gas would then escape into the, into the cavities, and sooner or later one of the Pomeroy bullets would hit a bit of superstructure and explode. And it's when the gas was in its less dense form, when it was leaking out into, into other areas of the ship, that it would ignite. And that's how it, that's how it proved to be successful. Um, Pomeroy, for his efforts, uh, uh, was awarded £25,000, which was a considerable sum of money in those days. £20,000 of that was cost, and 5000 was for, for his own pocket. So, you know, it was highly regarded. And it proved that, the, you know, when it, when it was actually put, put into use, it proved that we had something that could, could combat the, the airship uh, threat. This is just another, another one from MUN 7429. Um, it's talking about, this is Pomeroy. You can see this is Pomeroy himself talking about how the, or explaining how these, these rounds should be assembled and, and, and manufactured. 
And this is the paperwork, again, the same document, Nun 7429, for the award of £25,000 to, to, uh, to Pomeroy for, for his efforts. Now, obviously somebody had to put this into, into use and uh, enter William Leaf Robinson. Now, he had joined the... Uh, he was been, been in the... He was, had served in the army, basically. He wasn't, it wasn't a flyer from the, the, from the early days. Uh, he was born in 1895 and entered uh, Sandhurst in 1914, and he was actually serving in the Worcesters, Worcestershire Regiment. In March 1915, he went to France as an observer with the Royal Flying Corps, to which he transferred. Um, having been wounded over Lille, he went for pilot training in Britain uh, before being attached to the 39 Home Defence Squadron, basically night flying, def def defending the... the uh, the home island. This is the man that brought down the first Zeppelin at Cuffley. Um, it's on the night of the 2nd and 3rd of September 1916 over Cuffley in Hertfordshire, Robinson flying a converted BE-2C fighter sighted a German airship, one of 16 which had left bases in Germany for a mass raid over England. It, this was the wooden frame Schutzlang S-11. For some time, they thought it was a, another air, airship. Uh, they, they thought it was the Zeppelin L2. And it was quite some time later before they actually realised that uh, it, it was the, the older Schutz Lang. Uh, it made an attack from 11,500 feet, raking the, uh, the airship with machine, with machine gun fire, firing both Brock and, and Pomeram ammunition. He brought it down, and, uh, and the 15-man crew were, were all killed. This is just to illustrate, again, going back to W0339, just to illustrate Robinson's career. So here we have the paperwork for, I should say, these, these the W0339s are, are actually kept for pension reasons, and they were weeded in the 1930s, but they, they still contain an awful lot of information. It's nothing to do with, with, with pension. There's an awful lot of service material still in there. So as an example, the paperwork for him uh, entering the Military Academy at Sandhurst in 1914. This is a... I'll just put this in for reviews, for, for really. This was a de the, the declaration supporting him. He was obviously well-renowned. Well, well this is a, somebody called Dame Laura Alabaster. She put in a good word for him to... Um, I've, I've, if anybody can tell me who she was, I've tried to find out who she was. We obviously had some clout because she, she supported him in his position and got, you know, for his uh, entry into, into Sandhurst. Contains all manner of sort of personal things. This is in his, in his own hand here. Simple letters uh, forming, the, in this case, uh, informing the War Office of um, his change of address. I should say this is in W0339 50028. This is sh shortly after coming, coming out of the Worcesters and arriving for, for a, a, aviation uh, training in 1915. Now this, I think, is his handwritten account of the attack on the Zeppelin. Um, Say so it's in his file. It's just on a piece of um, fairly rough paper, very, very hurriedly scratched down. Um, and I, I believe that this, this is the, 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 the first account that he made on landing back, back at his home base. He's gone straight, straight, straight into his accommodation. He's got hold of some paper and he's made a... He's, and he's made his notes, so that's a quite a unique document. Within, within the file also is a proper um, uh, you know, war office uh, um, tran translation. The, the actual shooting down of the Zeppelin um, was witnessed by thousands of Londoners. Uh, they, saw, they saw the, uh, the, uh, 
the, the, the ship blazing in, in the night sky. Uh, people were cheering, they were playing the national anthem, apparently somebody also played bagpipes. It was a huge, it was a huge um, uh, you know, party. In fact, my grandfather was there and, and saw, saw the thing in the sky. Um, he, he, would, he was awarded the VC, uh, and he also received £3,500 as, as prize money. And he said, in brief, because it's a rather long, long, long document, I flew about 800 feet below it from bow to stern and distributed one drum among it, alternate new Brock and Pomeroy ammunition. It seemed to have no effect. I therefore moved to one side and gave them another drum along that side, also without effect. I then got in behind it, and by this time I was very close, 500 feet or less below, and concentrated one drum uh, part, this is rather orderly, concentrated one drum on one part underneath rear, he says in his... In his uh, I was then uh, at a height of 11,500 feet attacking, attacking the Zeppelin. I'd hardly finished the drum when I saw a, a, fire, at, at, a fire at glow, in, in a few seconds, the whole rear part was blazing. So it, it wasn't an instant thing. He, he, he put two or three drums of, a, of ammunition into this thing and they were circling around to come and have another go at it and he realised that he could see something glowing inside and that was the, that was the, actual, the, end, the end of the Zeppelin. It caught fire and, and, then, just, and, and then descended the cuffly. Now, after that, he continued to fly and... Uh, was unfortunately shot down and captured. He tried to escape a couple of times. Uh, whether it was a result of that or not, or whether it was a result of his notoriety, he was a VC, he, he shot down the Zeppelin, he wasn't treated particularly well by the Germans, by, by standards, uh, of, 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 even by standards of the First World War, he was not treated well. His health deteriorated quite, quite, uh, quite badly. Um, and this, the final document really, and you find quite a few of these in, in, in WO339, this is his, um, on repatriation, he has to give an account of how he was captured. Other ranks in the army don't have to do that. You're captured, fair enough. But if you're an officer, you have to give a full account of, of how that happened. And sometimes they're very decent, something that they contain maps and plans. Obviously this is a different thing you've shot down, so it can be fairly fairly short, but that's his, his account there of how it happened and when it happened. And this is the recommendation. I recommend that Lieutenant W.L. Robinson, Robinson, that's his recommendation there for the Victoria Cross. And that's an Air One 547. And this, um, in Air 1021, just to illustrate other things that we hold here, this is a two-seater version. But this is the, uh, the, the, the basically the, the type of aircraft that, that the home defence squadron was flying. Um, doesn't look very much, but apparently it's, it's, a, it's a very stable aircraft, a very good gun platform. Hence the uh, you know hence its, its use which for for, for def defend, defending uh, the uh, the southern part of uh, of the UK. And that concludes my talk. So I hope that was of some interest to, to you all. This talk was recorded on the 28th of November 2013.
at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.